0: Women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of its leadership. On Her Story, we'll explore the careers of bold and influential women from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill and learn how they've overcome the odds. I'm your host, Angela Jane, and this is Her Story, a program where we explore what's beyond the glass ceiling. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Praveen Pramar, Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine and Chief of the Division of Global Emergency Medicine at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Praveen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You have just a phenomenal career and I'm really excited to dig into it, but maybe let's start with the origin story. What inspired your interest in medicine? Just about as long as
1: I can remember, the thought was implanted in my head, probably because I'm a good South Asian girl with South Asian parents who believe that their daughters should be doctors. So I'll credit them with with planting the seed. But early on, just given my family background, both of my parents are the uh, children of survivors of partition of India. So grew up with the stories of refugees fleeing across the border and then just seeing the inequities in, in my own life across different settings, Southern California. Just knowing that medicine was an avenue potentially to address that really was what spurred me on and seeking a career in it. What inspired specifically emergency medicine then? I actually didn't know I was going to be an emergency physician until like the last part of my third year. So it was very late in coming to emergency medicine. It was, I thought about obstetrics and gynecology because of the ability to do, you know, women's health and advocacy there. I thought about internal medicine. I even loved psychiatry and neurology. And so I loved a little bit of everything. And ultimately, I loved having the ability to, at least in theory, address just about everything that comes through the door. So that was one piece of it, just from a clinical standpoint. And then knowing that I wanted to do global health, just really being able to address the needs of a variety of populations, whether pediatric, whether geriatric, with a whole variety of medical conditions. That's really what made me love emergency medicine. And uh, once I found it, it's
0: Definitely been just a fantastic choice. I've been very happy with it. So a lot of your work, I mean, in addition, as you've alluded to with the emergency medicine, really lies at the stem of global health and human rights. And that's a really unique intersection of a lot of different dimensions. Where did the passion for global health specifically come from? I think it comes back
1: to my my grandparents. So I I was born in the UK, my mom and dad married in the UK and from there went to Canada and then the United States. So had this a little bit more of an international perspective I think. Just just with that, certainly not one that involved resource poor settings at that point, but at least from my father who really grew up in a village in Punjab heard the stories of how inadequate access to basic things led to real morbidity and mortality. So people dying in childbirth, people dying of preventable diseases, it became really clear that that just wasn't fair. I mean, for lack of a, of a better way of saying it, just seemed that all the privilege and the ability that I was given by being raised in the West and having access to an education, I just kind of felt really compelled to honor that history and address it in some small way. So that's what brought me to
0: global health. Wow. So from those of us who are really less familiar of some of those international dynamics and and some of the human rights issues, how would you characterize the landscape of what some of the current priorities and challenges are specifically in that area of human rights? I mean, certainly, with the pandemic, it's it, it's the answer has changed.
1: <laughs> well, the answer both changed and stayed the same. I think. What became really clear to most of us in in medicine and in global health, and I think probably to everybody watching this is that covid was about more than a virus, right? I mean, it's it's the virus and the virus harms people, of course, and kills people, but different people are harmed in different ways. And a lot of that has to do with historical inequalities. It has to do with race and ethnicity and, and gender and location. Vaccine access has been a major issue around the globe. So I would say at the heart of human rights and global health is the fact that where you're born and what kind of a situation you're born into just so fundamentally affects the way you are able to live your life and the access to the, you know, access to care and access to opportunities. So I'd still say inequalities are still the biggest issue with regards to global health across the board. And COVID's really highlighted that. It's highlighted it globally, it's highlighted it in LA. We see it here too.
0: To that point, I mean, COVID really has spotlighted a lot of these issues, but you were really at the forefront of this well before that. As you think about your career and a lot of the different challenges and trends that you've seen in the industry, how have you seen some of that evolve? And do you think we're making progress in tackling some of those inequities? Look, it depends on what day you catch me on. There, there has been progress made. I mean, it's very easy to get lost
1: in, lost in all of the negative stories. Certainly, that's where we all focus, especially when we're trying to affect to change, but I would say that many health outcomes have improved in many different settings, and that's a good thing. We certainly still have a long way to go, though. And I think that one of the real challenges globally is the reality that we have some very difficult decisions to make if we're going to prioritize the needs of the most vulnerable in our world. We, we can't really continue to live in the way that we do if we really want to make other people's lives better in other places. So what do I mean by that? I mean, political decisions. I mean, vaccine inequities. We have to we have to really think about what does it mean that we're thinking about a third booster shot in the United States and a huge proportion of our world
0: hasn't had their first shot and is still very much at risk. What's phenomenal about your story is that you see all these issues, but you've really been leading a lot of different initiatives, both domestically, internationally, and really starting to look at these issues from a lot of different areas. And one of the questions we like to ask all of our guests on this program, as you know, is, do you consider your foray into healthcare leadership realm more accidental or intentional? It's a funny thing because I, I just in general with my career I get asked by students
1: how did you, how did you get to where you are how did you become the you know chief of a division or how did you get to work with some of the really great organizations I've had the privilege of working with and I, I didn't envision a specific career path actually at any point I think what I did was I was lucky enough to be able to pursue different opportunities and really identify what resonated with me along the way. And I think that's made my path and my career my and my current job much more interesting is that I've had the freedom to, and the luck to sort of pursue things along the way. So in terms of my foray into healthcare leadership, a little bit of both, I think it's, it's, and it's, yeah, a little bit of both. Let's go with that.
0: Well, so unpacked a little bit because that that is exactly the point, particularly for those pursuing careers in medicine, trained as a clinician, you have this very unique experience from childhood and family influences that have shaped a little bit of your interest areas. But to your point, you didn't really plan this or know that some of these opportunities might have been the, the route that you'd be spending your time today. So how does one go about carving out these I don't want to call it non-traditional, but different applications of clinical practice because there is no linear path all the time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the number one thing is if you're going to be a clinician
1: and if you're going to get an MD, you have to like practicing medicine. I made the joke about being a South Asian daughter and being a good South Asian daughter. I think a lot of people do, especially in that community and other communities as well, may feel pressured, as many people do, to feel pressured to sort of enter different career paths. And I think it's important specifically with medicine because- it's demanding. It's really demanding. You really have to love it. And what I tell people is, for example, people will ask me, what's the best specialty to do global health or human rights work? And I'm like, that is exactly how you shouldn't be picking a specialty. You've got to pick a specialty where if the whole world falls apart and the only thing you can do because family things come up, other things come up is just practice every day that
0: you love it. And and so that's the first thing I would say. That's really well said as you kind of have to start with the core, but it's really this idea of there's just so many different avenues or options for those with the clinical training or those without to go into global health or get into human rights. But I guess really the question is, how do you think that you have been able to create those opportunities for yourself, knowing that in many ways there wasn't someone that came before you that followed that same pathway?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I would say I did, I got lucky enough to find the specialty that I love, which is great. And then I think it's a matter of sort of seeking opportunities. It's, It's a balance between keeping the field open and then sort of Picking things that you think you're going to like and trying them long enough to see whether you like them or not, and then having the courage to step away from things that you don't like. I think that's just true in life, right? Just in general. So, for example, I chose to do a global emergency medicine fellowship, which was really helpful because it exposed me to what was possible within emergency medicine to do global health. And then within that, there's a whole range of things you can do as an emergency physician in the global health space. You can focus on developing emergency medicine. You can focus in the humanitarian space. And I happen to really be drawn to the, the research and human rights side. So that's where I land. So I think, I think it was just seeking, seeking various opportunities, building on networks, thinking creatively about networks. One of the things I learned early on, which was, has been probably the most helpful piece of advice I read anywhere was find the person that you think may be doing something you might like and write them an email and ask for 20 minutes of their time for advice. And inevitably, it leads to more. I mean, it doesn't always, but I I feel like every time I did that as an undergrad and a medical student, it always led to an internship, an opportunity, something else. And I think that's held true today as well. I think that's still true. I mean, I consider myself very much a
0: work in progress, so... I still, I still ask for advice all the time. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. Well, so to that point, you've, you've made a lot of decisions along the way and you've experienced things and figured out that's something you want to go deeper on or not so much. Has there been a particularly difficult decision or a trade-off that you think you've had to make in your career? Yeah, it's a funny thing.
1: I, I think there was a decision at some point that happened without me explicitly making it, which was a decision to. Be based in the United States as opposed to spending a long period of time abroad to explore what that might look like as a as a global health practitioner and so that was something I decided wasn't going to work for me in my lifestyle and I missed out on something by making that decision so I think that was that was one piece I, I gained a lot by finding the approach that I have which is that I have a little bit more of a home base in the United States and can can engage in supportive ways I think the thing that I've lost in that is the ability to really, fully embed myself. So it's it. The, the global health looks a little different. I go for shorter periods of time and remain involved in a setting for many years. So I just finished up a project in Jordan. I started in 2013. So that was a very long project. So that's one. I've found myself finding what I like and just kind of pursuing it. So it hasn't felt like trade-offs.
0: It's felt like following opportunities. I love that. That's a quotable moment because you're right. I mean, <laughs> it, it's all perspective and it, it's all learning. Well, so you mentioned Jordan, so I know your work has taken you all over the world. I'm so curious when we talk a lot about comparative health systems and just some of the, the both, you know, similarities and differences. What are some of the most interesting lessons that you've learned just collectively through your body of work that you think has shaped your perspective on what makes truly equitable health I think the first thing that is, is important is that every system
1: rations care every system rations care, there isn't a single one that doesn't. And so you can be thoughtful about the way you ration care, you can think about sort of ensuring that people have a basic level of access, ensuring that people that are the sickest and have most emergent disease get taken care of. You can ration according to ability to pay, you can ration according to citizenship and legal status, you can you can make those decisions. And I think many of those decisions are made without thought. (laughs) And they and they have real effects, or they're made with thought, by some and not with thought by others and without imp- appropriate input. And so I think the important thing when thinking about equitable access is to ensure that the right voices are at the table. And I don't even know that, I mean, quite frankly, we're not very good at that in the United States. So we're not good at that in most places, I feel like. And so I think in terms of ensuring equitable access to care, I think the number one piece is ensuring that All of the voices are at the table when those decisions are being made. And our political systems aren't, in general, very good at doing that. But
0: I think that would be a really good, important thing to work towards. Absolutely. Well, so then taking it more to the bedside and more at the clinical level, are there approaches or or different things that you've learned abroad that have carried with you as you think about the patients that you see when you're at home in Los Angeles? Definitely. We talk a lot in
1: global health about ensuring we're partnering with communities appropriately. And that means a lot of different things. That could mean a brief consultation with community. That could mean really embedding community in the decisions you're making. It could mean giving community members sort of roles in program delivery, program design, those kinds of things. And I think that that's that's true in the United States as well. And I think that's the piece that we still have a ways to go with in the United States. And certainly, I think the L.A. County healthcare system does a great job of, you know, trying to do it as best as they can but I would like to see and I think many community members would like to see more more diverse and uh, voices heard to inform you know the way that for example healthcare is delivered in an emergency department how do we treat trauma victims how do we deal with the secondary you know side effects of trauma mental health all those other things and so I think that that's probably the biggest lesson that sort of crosses over there's this is idea that there's like United States and then there's everywhere else, and things are different everywhere else. And it's like there's dozens of communities here in Los Angeles, and they all experience their health very differently. There's hundreds of, you know, thousands of communities across the country. So I think that perspective would be a useful one for every healthcare delivery system to really engage in.
0: I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, I think we're starting to talk more about that domestically, at least from, you know, my, my vantage point. But in many ways, there are a lot of parallels, too. We, I don't know if you would agree with this, but should we be thinking about our U.S. patient population as a microcosm of different countries and, and different cultures and, and having a very you know, different approach to each of those? And I think that's a very different way of thinking about it.
1: Yeah, there's a lovely subspecialty of emergency medicine that just grew up over the the past decade or so. It's called social emergency medicine. And, and for, I'll be completely honest. At first, I was really skeptical about it because it was like a little bit of global health and a little bit of like vulnerable populations in Los Angeles or whatever, wherever, whatever community you're in, most often urban Just because that's where these academic centers pop up. And I thought, but they're totally different issues. Like, it doesn't make any sense that we're sort of mixing the two. It's different skill sets and all these other things. And then really coming to Los Angeles, I was like, oh, I get it. (laughs) More so than because I was in Boston before my job in LA. and, And I was like, yeah, that actually, this subspecialty makes complete sense.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, I'll have to look into that. So social emergency medicine. So that's another uh, career option for the the next generation of physicians and training. It's good to it know. Yeah. So going back a little bit to your travels abroad, I know you have some phenomenal stories of just some very different experiences. What's been one of the most challenging experiences could be just kind of traveling itself or the work that you've done abroad, but I, I, I know you've seen a lot yeah, it's funny. The, the
1: first story that came to mind was one where I was in Cameroon. I was doing a survey when I was a fellow actually looking at sexual and gender-based violence among survivors of from fleeing from the Central African Republic into Eastern Cameroon. And it was my first experience really looking at that kind of trauma and, and really being faced with it in that way. And I found that really emotionally challenging. And I think what was interesting was that I think this is true in medicine as well. There's not there's, we're starting to just understand what that exposure to that and sort of means longer term. As a side note, I also lost like 15 pounds because uh, the food was not there was just wasn't any food like and it was one of those things. This was run by an international NGO who shall remain nameless. The, the logistics in the field was just a, was miserable, and so I came back looking like a skeleton. I weigh about I weighed about the same starting as I do now. So you can imagine 15 pounds. There wasn't a lot to lose. So that wasn't great. And along those lines, I think more recently, the the work that I did with Physicians for Human Rights looking at what the Rohingya survived in terms of the genocide in, in Myanmar, in Rakhine State, was for the same reason really challenging. There's always I always have this feeling when I'm studying these issues and trying to sort of document them that it's always a balance between feeling like it needs to be documented and a real sense of just responsibility and and a little guilt at making people revisit those times and a real sense of obligation. Every time I do one of these studies, I have a really deep sense of obligation that this information get used in a way that really does support the people who are survivors. And a lot of times we just don't know if it will or not. We just do our best and, and document and hope that it will. So yeah, I think human rights documentation is really challenging.
0: Wow. That's that's not easy work at all. I mean, both professionally, but, but personally, I mean, I don't want to overlook that, but I mean, I know personally, I mean, I would have a very hard time spending a lot of my time in these other places where you don't have all the luxuries and comforts that we're so used to having here. I mean, how have you personally been able to adapt emotionally? You mentioned the, the, the food. I mean, it's just so different. How, how do you do it? You know, I was really lucky because when I was a kid, my
1: parents took me to India.
0: (laughs) So i sounds
1: so daft because I was eight and I went for the first time I was seven or eight and I was in a village. I mean, it was a village. We didn't have running water. There were no latrines. I mean, it was like go in the fields, like it's public health nightmare. It's it's the community has since gotten sort of a, a decent public health standard. But that was my family, and so something about I think early on seeing that, like, oh, this is like how normal people live in the rest of the world. This is like very normal. It wasn't like exotic or, or anything like that. It just made it. I wouldn't say easier, but it just was like yeah, this is fine. I think it just makes it easier to adjust to. But I will say as well, like honestly, most of the time these days when I travel, it's I'm, I'm hardly roughing it. And and the truth is, is that. Sure, it's uncomfortable for me. And I've had people ask me, don't you feel like your safety is a concern when you travel? And certainly sometimes I have, but I've got an American and a British passport. So truly, most of the time, I'm very well protected. It's the people that I'm speaking with that are at risk. And so, yeah, it's uh, manageable.
0: Well, so from a safety perspective, not to overgeneralize, but I'm curious, have you felt a different level of security or treatment abroad because you were a woman. Like I'm just thinking about my own experience sometimes people say, oh, like don't travel here because you're a female, you need to be extra careful. Has that played into the equation at all for you? Yeah. I mean definitely. I think about it, you know?
1: And I'm always a little jealous of the, you know, the the tall, the tall dudes that I <laughs> travel with that are that are fine. You can go anywhere. They're like, I'm gonna go for a walk by myself. I'm like, great. You enjoy that I will or I'll go for a run outside it's like can't do that I'll never forget even Jordan uh, so Amman is a very progressive place but I feel weird it's like walking out by myself it just feels a little it feels a little strange sometimes and and I shouldn't say Jordan is a lovely safe country and I just love being there and uh, everybody's so warm and kind when I was in Pakistan I was in a pretty conservative area for a while when I was when I was working there and so there were limitations about leaving the, leaving the compound, and, and that can be a little challenging. Say, India was honestly probably the toughest place, right? Because I was in New Delhi. That, in some ways, I mean, I was in New Delhi before there was... A, we all know of the the really high rate of sexual violence that, that occurs in India. And in 2012, I was sort of wandering around Delhi by myself. And I, and I thought afterwards, I can't do that again. As a single woman walking around New Delhi by myself, I must have been crazy. I was doing it at night sometimes. Just like walking around and taking public transport. And, and again, how much of this is, I'm cognizant also of how much of this is just perception and what we've been taught to be afraid of, and how much of it is real. Most of the time, I would say in all of the countries I've been to, more often than not, people are kind, they are uh, caring, they take care of you. When I was wandering around New Delhi by myself, I remember two older Indian men going, you really shouldn't be out by yourself. You, wanna, you want someone to walk you home? And they did. And, and it was so... So I don't know. I do think a lot of the fear that we have is internalized and you don't want to go out and be reckless, but I think it's fine to do more probably than we think it is.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really great point of view. I had not thought about that, but this idea of perception of reality and really thinking about the... Yeah, how much of that is just self-internalized, but always always good to be cautious either way. So shifting gears a little bit, I mean, you just wear so many hats and you make it seem so easy. You're teaching, you're seeing patients, you're doing your research, you're traveling for a lot of your research. What advice do you have for others, particularly clinicians who are juggling like multiple professional commitments, right? It's not just one job, it's really multiple jobs layered in. hmm
1: the biggest piece of advice I would say is schedule your time for the things that are important and everything else comes after that. So I have, uh, and I, I've gotten better at this over the years. I wasn't very good at it when I was in Boston. I've gotten a little better since I, since I came to USC, but things like exercise, it's it's not really an optional thing. This is not like making sure you're cooking healthy food and eating healthy food. It's not an optional thing. And if you, you start to realize, particularly as you age in it becomes more important to take care of yourself because you see the ways that not taking care of yourself just hurts. If you're going to do anything for the world, for your family, for the people that you love, for the people thousands of miles away, you're, you're going to be kind of useless if you're not really prioritizing yourself a little bit. So I think that that's probably the biggest piece of advice I would give. And then just making sure that you're clear about, I think, being honest with yourself about how long things are going to take. <laughs> It's very, I'm sure you've done this too. I imagine I'm preaching to the choir, but it's like you you put a list of things for your day and you're like, I'm going to do these 12 things. And then every day you can feel disappointed in yourself because you didn't do it. You, you know, you're not going to do it. Just don't, don't do it to yourself. And I'm, as I'm speaking, I literally am looking at my list of like 12 things. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> Sometimes really this happens every day. Well, a tip for that. I had a great mentor share this. She said, flip it so that at the end of the day, even if you make that list and you don't accomplish it, make a new list at the end of every day and write the three to five things that you actually did accomplish, no matter how big, no matter how small. So even if it's I read an article, right? Even even if the, the broader task was I need to like do the lit review and write the first like three paragraphs of something. But even if you just sat down and read it, count that as a accomplishment and write it down. Totally. That's great advice. I like that. I'll start. Doing it works that. really well. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't make it any easier with that to-do list. Actually, so speaking of that point, what role have mentors played in your journey? Oh, a lot. I mean,
1: gosh, there's so many. I think You know, certainly there have been people that have just, I mean, just even providing realistic advice about what I should be looking at and exploring. I think about Dr. Stephanie Caden, who's the woman that was my fellowship director, and how much she did for me during my two years there, teaching me how to do a, a cluster survey in the middle of, of Cameroon. She was there with me and we both lost a bunch of weight together. <laughs> I think about Dr. Greg Greeno, who is my research mentor when I was there. There's countless other people that I can think of. I, I think the most valuable thing really is sponsorship when people do actually, you know, have an opportunity for you. Some people that will say, here's not just, here's my advice on how to find a grant to do that work. That's really important, but here's a person who can actually, you can connect with who will, who will actually give you that grant or here's somebody at the foundation. So I think taking that step, that extra step um, to really go out on the line. Those are the people that I really feel I just owe a ton to.
0: Absolutely. Well, so whether it be mentors, sponsors, colleagues bosses right we all get a lot of feedback and i personally feedback is a gift even if it is slightly negative or critical but has there been a particular piece of difficult feedback that you've gotten in your career that just stands out as an inflection point for you and how did you overcome that
1: yeah so the the most difficult feedback i got actually was when i landed at la county hospital as a new attending i've always perceived myself as the nice attending people like working with me my residents think i'm great and I'd been at the Brigham for, I don't know, eight years at that point. And so I had a very specific way of interacting with my residents. The Brigham is a very different environment. There's a lot more attending work and and residents work really hard, but attendings are very involved in every step of every decision. And at LA County Hospital, there's a slightly different way of operating where the residents, I, I think it's really good for them as well. And the Brigham is a great way of doing things too, but anyway, they they have a little bit they operate differently. They have a little bit more autonomy. and and so after my first year, I just got ripped apart in my evaluations. It was so bad. I left the office of my supervisor in tears, which is horribly embarrassing. (laughs) And I really couldn't even, I had an important meeting later, the chief of the division of blah, blah, blah. And I was like in tears. I was like, I can't do the rest of the day. I'm going to go home because I was so devastated because I think, and I hope my residents know this. And if any one of them is ever watching this, I hope they know this. They, They really are just at the core of what's really important to me in my work. I, I feel like th- they come here to to learn and I feel really a very deep obligation to making sure that they they get a good experience and that they really are supported in their learning. So that was, that was soul crushing actually to see that. And I think what I did was took it to heart. I just started to really think about how I could support them in, in a more autonomous way, how I could let go a little bit more, how I could become a stronger clinician to teach them a little better. I'm still working on that because it's, I think, you mentioned many hats. I think it's challenging to be, I think I'm pretty good, but I'm not somebody who spent my entire career focusing on clinical medicine only. So I'm spread a little thin. So sometimes there's things that I may not know as well as say some of the people that really have spent their whole lives just focusing on clinical medicine. So
0: keep chugging. Well, I think the power in what you're saying underlying a lot of that, at least my view of it is we all do a lot of different things, play a lot of different roles, but knowing sometimes uh, the boundaries of some of our strengths and areas we need to work on. I think that self-reflection in itself is is really powerful and recognizing those and, and taking that to keep improving on, I think is the heart of, of being a good leader. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious if we talk to a lot of women physicians on the show and just generally in the industry, if Throughout your career, you've noticed any particular, like, unique experiences or challenges that you think women physicians or women leaders in the academic medical environment uniquely face, and what advice you might have for them? Yeah, it's funny because I just did it. I think it's that tendency to just rip yourself apart if you're not perfect.
1: I think that's the biggest challenge that we all face. Where I think women are, this is such a broad generalization. But in general, I would say I see a lot of people who identify as women feeling like their personal worth is tied to work and judgments from work and external approval. And that is I mean, it's so deeply ingrained. It's really hard to beat out of yourself. But quite frankly, if you're going to do a job like being an emergency physician. People sometimes are not gonna like you. If you're gonna be a leader in any space, people are just not gonna like you sometimes. And it's gotta be okay. It's gotta be okay. So I think that's I think that's a big piece. I think the other piece is is sort of I do see, and I see women do it too. I see women trainees do it. I see male trainees do it, where there's this assumption that if you don't look a certain way, you're not as knowledgeable or you don't you don't present yourself in a certain way that you're not the same quality of leader or clinician or whatever. And so I think I very consciously early on developed, I think I, I tried to develop a way of speaking and presenting myself the projected authority. And it was a conscious decision. So and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'm guilty of this, I will see women present themselves in more traditionally, and I've got the makeup and stuff, but high pitched voice, whatever, just like, Flipping. And, and I just I get judgmental as well. So I think there's a lot of bias still towards the way that women present themselves in medicine, which is really challenging. And I've seen women who go into the same position as a man and get paid fifty thousand dollars less. From really, what only
0: seems to come down to just being a woman. So I think there's still a long, a long way to go. I guess to that point, I mean, it's a there's a broader systemic issue at at play, and a lot of us are talking about it from different vantage points. Are there things that you think a little bit is that bias of do we dress a certain way, talk a certain way, like how much of that do you think has to be done or what advice would you have for individuals who are up against what societies, those confines, but then also trying to chip, chip at it a little bit too, right? There's a little bit of a balance, right? Playing within the game that exists today while also trying to change it.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. So one of the other hats I wear is I'm the director for the Center for Gender Equity in Medicine and Science at the Keck School of Medicine. So I've been thinking a lot about this and learning a lot. And I think for me, I've really started to un- to see my biases because we all have them. I don't want to say that anyone should present themselves in any specific way to accommodate biases in society. I just think that's wrong. I mean, it's it's our collective duty to point it out. That being said, I think it is important to learn to project authority, whatever that looks like for you. And it can look very different depending on who you are. And so, and so I don't want to say there's a specific way to do it. I think, but I think it has to ultimately it has to emanate from a belief that you are what you have to say is important no matter where you're coming from. And I think you can say that with humility too. I think one of the nice things that for better or worse, and this is another terrible generalization, but I think that people that come from you know, specific backgrounds have a maybe may have a greater sensitivity, either as a woman or you know, person of color. Like you have a you have an understanding of issues from a different vantage point and you may actually it, it brings a certain humility as well to the work, I think. And again, broad generalization, definitely know plenty of people who don't follow that pattern on all sides of the spectrum. We're all guilty of being blustery and insisting that we're right or not.
0: But yeah, I think, I think just projecting authority, whatever that looks for you, is really important. Yeah, that, that, that's phenomenal perspective. I guess, so then flipping the table a little bit, what advice would you give your younger self? I think
1: worry a little less about the future. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And I, it's funny, as I'm saying that, I'm like, that's advice I could take today. Just because there's the future is a very, it's a very theoretical place. And I think if you, again, that idea of when you're seeking a career, do the things you like when you're seeking whatever you want in your life, just taking the next step and trusting that it's going to be fine. Don't be afraid of taking risks. Don't take unnecessary
0: risks. It's all a balance. Well, to that point, I mean, I I just love the trajectory that you've been on and I'm excited to see what, what you continue to tackle on in the years to come. And the little bit of the play on the show is if you think about your healthcare leadership legacy that you want to leave behind, when you think about your autobiography coming at at some point in time that I see on the bookshelves, what would be the title of it?
1: Oh, work in progress. Love it.
0: (laughs) Very well said. Well, Praveen, thank you so much for spending some time with us. You are just a phenomenal leader and thank you for all the work that you do. I know it's not easy, but know that it is really making a huge difference and inspiring the career paths of, of so many to come after you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Her Story is a podcast produced by Think Medium. For more leadership stories from inspiring women across healthcare, tune in every Wednesday. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also view Her Story episodes in video and access exclusive content on our website at thinkmedium.com. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you insights from influential women across the country. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate you spreading the word to your friends, family, colleagues, and mentors who might be interested. For questions and suggestions, please contact us at herstory@thinkmedium.com. at Thanks for listening.